2: This is the Court Today replay on C103.
3: And a very good Thursday morning to the programme as we welcome you along. John Paul taking your calls at 1850 333 103. Whatever you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can text or WhatsApp as well to 0862 103 103. lot of coverage in the papers uh, today to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission. We're going to continue to discuss it on the programme today. We will be speaking uh, in a couple of minutes with a survivor of Besber who is particularly concerned about the Besber site and as we know there is a planning application in for a development of apartments on that, on a section of that site and that's causing a huge huge upset to many survivors of Besber. And listening around yesterday, particularly to a lot of the national radio stations So many of the stories of survivors and people talking about what happened to them seemed to have come out of Besborough. and I'm not saying Besborough wasn't the only mother and baby home and it certainly wasn't the only mother and baby home in the Commission's uh, report but so many of the survivors have stories to tell about what happened to them in Besborough, and some of them are truly, truly uh, shocking and just to remind people if you want to read the report it's nearly 3,000 pages long I still haven't and I don't know if I will ever get through all of the uh, report, because it's quite harrowing at times. And then at other times... It seems to be quite a sanitised version of what the survivors told, and and you sort of as the more you're hearing from the survivors, the more more you're thinking is that that story wasn't really reflected properly in the commission. So I've really got very mixed views at the moment about the report itself. Anyway, a, a backlash against the mother and baby home report threatened to overshadow the Taoiseach's formal state apology uh, to the doll yesterday. I mean when we signed off yesterday, at one o'clock we knew that that was one of the things that was going to happen in the afternoon was the Taoiseach giving the former state apology and I was just really hoping that the wording of the apology would set the right tone and that, that survivors would feel that they were first and foremost at in front of that apology and that apology was aimed at them. And I, and I do think the tone of the of the... Apology yesterday. I think it it uh, for me certainly listening to it. I I I think it hit all the right notes, and I think uh, and I think survivors themselves. I'm hoping survivors themselves took comfort from what the Taoiseach had to say yesterday, and he was very much speaking on behalf of the entire uh, nation. But some survivors had specifically asked that the apology shouldn't have been made yesterday that it should have been delayed in order to give a lot of the survivors time to absorb the findings of this very very lengthy report. I mean I imagine even this morning some of the survivors will not have read all of the report. I'm assuming what they'll do is they'll go into the report and they'll find the homes relevant to them which is very understandable but you know for a lot of survivors they want to read this report, reread this report, particularly go over the section that's applicable uh, to them so you wonder, should the Taoiseach have held off on the state's apology? But anyway, the apology went ahead uh, yesterday. I mean, even the, la- the last count corla, Catherine Connolly, actually held up the reports, just the executive summary. And she made the point that TDs had received this report before the victims. And the victims were actually only told at the end of the webinar on the day that the report was launched which was Tuesday it was only at the end of the webinar that they were all invited to attend it was only then they were told whether they could download the full documents and then of course it was at three o'clock that the rest of us got access to see it online so they didn't they really didn't get a lot of time and they still haven't had a lot of time to absorb the enormity of what's contained in this uh, report now some of the tds yesterday also raised repeated objections to the report's repeated claim that there was no evidence of forced entry into any of these mother and baby homes, that there was no evidence of forced adoption. They also say that there was no evidence of physical or sexual abuse. But when you're reading down uh, through the report and you read some of the personal testimonies, you can clearly see that... some girls were forced into the, these homes many of the girls speak about they didn't want their babies to to be ad- adopted so if they didn't want their babies to be adopted surely you take from that that it was a forced uh, adoption and even down to whatever about the sexual abuse I, 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 certainly anything I've heard there was, there's no evidence of sexual abuse but physical abuse there certainly was stories of uh, physical abuse but definitely the forced entry and the, the forced adoption I mean only yesterday I heard a story of Of A a woman who, when she was only a child, she was 13 and she had been raped. And as the result of rape, she found herself pregnant and her family, her parents were absolutely distraught. Now, we're talking about this was back in the 70s, local parish priests, the nuns uh, got involved came to the family home said the only place for this young girl was in a mother and baby home and the family who were from somewhere in Tipperary wanted to keep this young child because she was only a child and she was already coming to terms with the fact that she had been raped they wanted to keep her at home and to allow her to have the baby in a local hospital and then for the baby to go for adoption they were accepting that you know adoption was the right route for this little girl's baby but the priests and the nuns in the area were adamant that there was no way that this child was giving birth to her baby. In the local hospital, because you know everyone would be talking and the scandal that would be attached uh, to it. And then they got word that the hospital weren't going to allow this this little girl in to have her baby if the family decided to stand up to the church. And then a month before the baby was born, I mean they kept her at home for you know for the eight months of her pregnancy. And a month before she was born, priest arrived up and she was bundled into a car and she was taken to Besper, and that's where she had the baby. I mean, just shocking, you know. I mean, there's nobody's telling me that that girl wasn't forced into that home and even forced against the parents well because I know in a lot of the cases the parents were the ones who forced the girls into these mother and baby homes because of the shame that was attached and the shame that they were bringing on uh, to the family so so I think the criticism of the report saying no evidence of forced entry or forced adoption I do really think that that's something that needs to be uh, looked at but yesterday then there was some apologies forthcoming Catholic Archbishop of Chum. Asked for forgiveness for the Church's failure to prevent the pain and suffering visited on these women and their children in the mother and baby homes. Uh, Archbishop Michael Neary, and I was delighted to hear this, also went on to praise The uh, investigative worth of Catherine Corliss, who joined us yesterday, which he said had afforded dignity, justice and truth to the deceased and to their families. And I think for Catherine Corliss herself, she must be, I hope, sitting in her own home smiling to herself and delighted that she gets that kind of recognition from the Archbishop of Toome because so many within the church, when Catherine started talking about what had been discovered in Toome, really wanted her to go away and keep her mouth closed and just not say anything. But she kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And because she was relentless in talking about what had happened at Toome. That's the only reason that we were even here today talking about this commission's report. So well done to Catherine Cordis and to the Archbishop of Toome for publicly acknowledging her yesterday. And then they also, and I know she, Catherine yesterday, just before she came on air with us yesterday, she'd heard this, the religious orders who ran that notorious home in Toome from 1925 to 1961, pledged to participate in the redress uh, scheme it was this, and, and also issued an apology And in admission of guilt, this was the statement from the Bon Secure sisters who ran June. They said the Commission's reports presents a history of our country in which many women and children were rejected. Silenced and excluded, in which they were subjected to hardship, in which their inherent human dignity was disrespected in life and in death. Our sisters of the Bon Secure were part of this sorrowful history. And Sister Eileen O'Connor said, We did not live up to our Christianity when running the home. We failed to respect the inherent dignity of the women and children who came to the home. We failed to offer them the, the compassion that they so badly needed. And I know that statement yesterday from the Bon Secours sister sisters, certainly when Catherine Corliss joined us, Made her, made her day yesterday because she had already was coming to terms with the report and the way the report had been handled and the Wednesday she felt hadn't been or Tuesday hadn't been a good day but then she, to hear that yesterday morning she said certainly it was uh, great news and talking of the religious sisters who ran these uh, homes and the ones who are featured in the Mother and Baby Homes um, Commission some now have indicated that they will be they are willing to be involved in uh, redress. As I mentioned, the Bon Secures uh, who run the tomb home said they will participate in any future redress scheme. And then the Sisters of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary, they're the ones who run Besber, Castle Pollock and uh, Shanross uh, Abbey in Nina in Tipperary. They say they are considering it and they do say we will deal directly with the minister on any matter and then the sisters of Our Lady of Charity of Good Shepherd they were the Good Shepherd sisters they said similar and they also said they will deal directly with the government but at least they're reaching out and saying that they will help when it comes to uh, redress and I think for the survivors that is going to be important. And I think as a nation, as we hang our heads in shame and what happened to these women, I think many people will say, yes, it's only right and proper that these orders that have money should be should be coughing up and should be paying Uh, compensation to these women and to the children for what they went through. So that's another little glimmer of light that has come out from this commission's report. And when we were discussing Besborough yesterday a couple of people mentioned the book The Light in the Window and this was the story of a midwife who had worked in Besborough for a period of time in the 50s a lady by the name of June Goulding who I had the honour a number of years ago when she first brought out the book uh, to interview and a lot of people were saying you should go away and people should read that book if you want to see what besber uh, Mother and Baby Home was like back in the 50s. And I actually thought... That the book had gone out of print because I know a number of years ago somebody went looking for a copy of this book and we tried to get a copy. We ended up a listener gave a loan of they had the book at home and gave a loan to the listener who was looking for it. But we were we couldn't find that it, it was it was it was as if it was out of, of reprint. Well, poolbag who've published the book, were listening to the program yesterday, and as it came off air, they sent an email to say that that book is available. The light in the window, Besper mother and baby. Uh, Home by June Goulding, priced at 9 99 If you get on to poolbeg.ie, because obviously bookshops are closed at the moment, but I'm, I'm assuming you can you can certainly buy it from from Poolbe- Poolbeg Or if you are buying your books online from your bookshop, get on to your bookshop and see if they can order a copy for you. It is called the Light in the Window by June Goulding. And then a listener contacted us and who doesn't want to be identified because they they don't want the individuals identified either Uh, but it reads that something that happened to this uh, gentleman about 20 years ago and it reads Hi Patricia about 20 years ago I helped a lady trace her birth mother she had been born in Besborough mother and baby home and despite her own efforts had failed to locate her birth mother I worked on it on and off for over three years and I eventually tracked her mother down now living in England I worked through an adoption society in Cork who asked me that if I did manage to locate the mother in question that I allowed them to make contact with her as they would have the expertise in how to deal with it. This I did. They made contact with the uh, mother but she refused to cooperate as she had never told her husband and her now two children who also didn't know that many years previously she had given birth to a little girl in uh, Besper We asked for a photograph of herself which she did send on. While disappointed this photograph of her mother was a great comfort to the lady I was helping and the good news also is that she did come to know and meet some of her mother's people. So overall not a bad result I suppose isn't that just in itself so sad and that has happened time and time again where somebody has managed to track down a birth mother or a birth child and for whatever reason is going on in the person's life, either the adopted child or the birth mother they don't want to connect. There has been many fantastic reconnections and people getting reunited many, many years later that have worked out very well. Equally, I have over the years interviewed people who reconnected with a birth mother and it didn't work out and there was great sadness in that as well. But I just think for closure for people who had been adopted just to know who they were. Sometimes, I mean, for that lady just to have a photograph of her mother, that's all she has and then for her to have identified some of her mother's people, just a sense of being and a sense of place for her that was uh, enough. 1850, 103. And just one other point when we were talking yesterday, I'm aware of younger people because... Some people were texting yesterday saying they just found it very strange that we were even using the term unmarried mother because it's a a phrase that's gone. You'd never hear it being used. You'd never hear somebody identified today oh there's Mary and her baby. Mary's an unmarried mother. It just wouldn't. It just wouldn't happen. So there's a younger generation who are very much getting educated by this commission's report and hearing so much about what happened in this country, sometimes not that uh, long ago. And one name of a politician that featured a lot yesterday in a lot of commentary that I was reading online as well was the, the name of Frank Klusky. And Frank Klusky has emerged as one of the scarce positive aspects of the report of the mother and baby home because it was Frank Klosky who developed groundbreaking legislation back in 1973. And in 1973, because of Frank Klosky, Klus- it was for the first time ever, there was a welfare payment to what was then known as unmarried mothers and the commission's report notes that from the late 1960s more than nine out of ten mothers in these mother and baby homes gave their children up for adoption because if their families weren't going to support them they had no way of providing for their children but then this single mother's allowance was introduced in 1973 and that then helped to accelerate social change as unmarried mothers increasingly found themselves in a position that they had a social welfare payment, they would be able to keep their babies and they would be able to look after them. And, and maybe then once the children went to school, they were able to go back to work if that's what they if, that, if that's what they wanted to do. But it was because of Frank klosky. It was a Fine Labour coalition at the time. And uh, Frank Kluski was in charge of welfare. He was the social welfare minister at the time and actually under under that government that Fine Gael labor government there was other that labor would say were their notable a- achievements it included for example payments to deserted wives That didn't exist uh, up until the 70s. Prisoners' wives finally got a social welfare allowance. And then the one that really made me smile, it was under that Fine Gael Labour Coalition that they started paying children's allowance to mothers rather than to fathers. Up to the seventies the children's allowance was paid to the fathers. And this was this was in an era where mothers if they worked in the civil service or in certain other jobs, as soon as they married had to give up their jobs. So they they weren't even out at work and so the only income they would have would be the ink would be whatever the husband would give them at the end of the week out of his uh, salary. So that was a big turnaround in the 70s where mothers suddenly could go to the post office on the first Tuesday of every month and pick up the children's allowance because it was in their name. Uh, And also that particular government saw the phased reduction of the pension age up to the early 70s. You were 70 before you got an old age pension. And they got it reduced down to uh, 66 and it was the first reduction in pension age since it had been introduced in 1909 and I wonder uh, uh, will Frank Klosky be turning in his grave when he starts to realise that that's been turned, that's going to be turned around again uh, because we're moving back up I think more towards the age of 70. We're certainly not going down. Uh, John in Cove on the Mother and Baby Homes Commission. An apology is only a word. The people who committed these atrocities against the these young women will once again walk free, Walk free. The, whim, the people who put them in there. Young girls were incarcerated into these homes by their parents and their families and many incarcerated their own flesh and blood, the Catholic Church and so many more are to blame and they have all walked free. Many of these women and their children will have a mark for the rest of their days and that's the one thing I was delighted to hear trying me or Martin trying to get across about shame it's the these women have nothing to be ashamed of and it's to try to get that message though across to women who've lived all their lives with that shame. It's very hard if you've lived all your life with shame to suddenly say oh well the Taoiseach said it's okay so the shame has been uh, lifted. And Billy Abandon says a lot of political stupidity in this country this is particularly when it comes to Besbor and the very notion that they will build apartments on that site. Why can't they do an archaeological dig at Besbor and for once and for all know where these babies have been buried rather than assuming or waiting for somebody to say where the babies has been buried because the report itself even stated that they found it strange that none of the nuns uh, living who would have been in Besborough over the years that none of them all of them claim they have no idea where the babies were buried. Now, I know some of them would have been buried many, many years ago, many years before the nuns would even have arrived. But you would think people would talk, wouldn't you? And that there would have been mention of where the babies had been buried. And that in itself is causing a lot of upset to women who had babies who died when they were in Besborough and for them not to know where their babies have been buried, know that they're buried somewhere on the site and to think that now a developer could come in and a big apartment block will go on the site where your little baby was buried. It really does not bear uh, thinking about. Hi, Patricia. Remember Anne Lovett that died at the grotto in Granart, said uh, Sheila. God, oh, Sheila, will we ever forget? Anne Lovett in was 1984, was the early 80s. That was such a horrific uh, case. Actually, one of the girls who gave her... testimony to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission said the only reason that she ended up in Besborough was because of Anne Lovett, because there was so much attention and everyone was talking about Anne Lovett. For those who don't know, she was a 14-year-old girl who, by all accounts, hit her pregnancy, even though people would say, how could a young 14-year-old girl have gone to school every day and nobody noticed that she was pregnant, went to school she was. It was a full term baby had been born, so she was nine months pregnant. Went to school one, or headed out to school, and instead of going to school, went to the grotto. And I think it was at lunchtime. There was boys walking home from school. Uh, found her. She had delivered the baby herself, and then she had bled to death, and both she and the baby had uh, died. And I know if you talk to anyone or know of anyone who lives anywhere near Granard nobody wants to talk about what happened with that and love it there's a deep sense of shame on behalf of the people of Granard as well but one of the girls who spoke to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission said that's the only reason she went to Besborough, she was so terrified of what had happened to Anne uh, could happen to uh, her and someone else says all Martin should not be saying sorry for me says this uh, texter it was the grandparents of those babies that were born were the cause of this they were the ones who forced their daughters in. Into these uh, homes. And Noreen said, children who may have tried to contact their birth mothers should try again after a time as even if the mother declined to meet them, the families might like to know them. Feelings and circumstances change over time, says Noreen. And hopefully as well, Noreen, that's a good point, hopefully as well, with all of this talk About the mother and baby homes, there will be women who have kept this a secret, like the email I read out from the gentleman who, a number of years ago, was trying to trace the mother, trace the mother, but because she'd gone on to marry and have two children, never told her husband that she'd had a baby, never told her two children that they have an older uh, sister. And maybe with all of this talk, it may encourage some birth mothers who have been reached out to by their children. It may encourage some of them to say, "Yeah." Why not? Why not try and um, make that connection and meet up with the child who who is now an adult? 1850 333 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text on WhatsApp 0862 103,
2: 103 Court today on C103.
4: With McCroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See macrooemotors.com.
3: Now, Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman has said he shares campaigners' concerns about the potential existence of children's remains at the former Besber Mother and Baby Home. Members of the Cork Survivors and Supporters Alliance have raised concerns about a residential plan for part of the site and joining me from that group is Catherine Coffey O'Brien. Good morning she Catherine. Good morning. Uh, you're welcome to the programme. I suppose, firstly, your reaction to the Commission's report this week and how much of it have you been able
5: to read?
6: But well, I'm still, um, I'm still, um, I'm still reading this and fleshing it out, and I won't be jumping to any conclusions until I fully, fully comprehend every every aspect of us and the implications of the findings. And um, I would like to say I welcome. I had confidence in Roderick O'Gorman. government. I still do. I also would like to say I welcome the apology as you just mentioned, Belsborough, we launched the papers against development yesterday, the day before yesterday in Cork City Council with the planning department. We're also going for an oral hearing with, on board with our barristers. We want the land signed over to Cork City Council and it register, registered as a graveyard. There is no need for exhumations in Belsborough. And O'Gorman came out and spoke for her daughter, Evelyn, who was born and died within 20 minutes of birth in Belsborough. There are women buried in Bezbra with alongside the baby. Uh, they weren't acknowledged in life. They should be acknowledged in death. They had that right. And Anne has that right to be able to sit down on the bench and light a candle. In a and and you're, you're, saying,
3: you're saying you don't want the site excavated? No, do 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 you not want? That's
6: the mother's no. That's the mother's wishes because as I and many others have said, they're all in together. Okay, they're there for decades. Let them in peace, but let them be acknowledged and respected and protected from any from any intrusion of development.
5: So
3: you would say. Sign over, or sign over, or let the let the nuns sign over the land, or come to some arrangement with the council, and then turn it into like a memorial garden. No,
6: no, I, 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 it would be registered as a graveyard. Okay, then, all right. through consultation process, with all the mothers affected by by this, then well, a bench, some wild flowers, and somewhere where you could light a candle. It's very simple. Mm. And where we're we not making, you know, big demands. Like it's, it's 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 in Ireland. Burial and the tradition of burial is one of our rituals. Yeah. And you know, we weren't like I I'm in I'm an intergenerational survivor. I that means my mother was in the industrial schools before me. I was in the industrial schools and then I was in Bellsborough. And Anne and many more their children are buried in bed and there are girls buried in Belsbr, mothers. And what is, the, you know, what's the point of disturbing them? Just acknowledge them, respect them, and protect the place where they lay. It's very simple.
3: And let them rest in peace, but but mark it out, and let it be known for future generations that well, this I is went, a cemetery.
6: Exactly. It. I welcome on one part of the findings that it was this this subject. And um, this whole history is going to be in the curriculum of education, because as a society in the country, this history has, and the narrative of it has to be in our, within our education system, so that our attitudes for future generations, we will learn from, our, from past mistakes.
3: Mm. That's a really good. It's a really good point. And Catherine, when you were in Besborough in the late eighties, were you aware of where some of the babies were were buried? Were you aware of a graveyard?
6: I was told I was in the kitchen by an old woman that was 30, thirty, forty years in there. She never left there. She told me not to be going up there, up the back there. She says the living, the, uh, while you're carrying the living, you don't walk on the dead.
3: And,
6: and that was, was just a field, figure. was it? What, 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 what was that area? It's up the back. It was it, no. What it is? It's before. It's before the folly It's there's a pathway going through it, but the, the maps that we have and the, all the evidence we have there, it is there's part of it that is a fence. There's a fence running through it as well, but tends it's like for all the world it's like a little meadow on one side and the other side then is brush. Okay. And there's an awful lot of wildlife above there as well. Um, natural habita- habitat above there as well. And a lot of people go walking up along there. And
3: it's that's the, where you believe many... That's
6: I believe at all. We have the evidence. We have the evidence, we, okay. have, we have the... We we got the map. We went through all the right channels. It clearly states Children's Burial Ground. we The map has been authenticated... It is in part the evidence, and it was. We have every aspect. We have testimonies from women that saw burials. We also have. We also have the death star, the birth star, but the map, the map evidence, everything. We have. We have been very measured and rational in our approach. Who
3: would have conducted the burials, Catherine? At the time,
6: it would have been um, ground now, I must add that Maureen Constantine, she's a PhD academic. Yeah. She came on board with me to help me. And she listened to Anna Garman and many others. And without her, we wouldn't have got half it to, win, to the point we got. Even though I have a degree from UCC, there was no way I could have done this by myself. Okay. I came forward. Just this, There's no I in we. And Anna came forward. And revealed that Evelyn, Evelyn was born, dead, and buried in Belfast. Then we had the groundsmen come forward and told us about the previous groundsmen who did the burials. Then we had other women come forward and saw burials. And then Maureen and myself did the research to, to find, to actually find the map to try. And then everything else we, we did, um, we did it in a very mindful but a very rational academic way.
3: Okay, well done. Would there have been a priest there with the groundsman
6: when the child... The, no. No. From the testimonies that we got um, uh, in testimony, it's out there in the open and uh, Evelyn was buried and uh, I remember the old orange boxes.
3: The wooden kind of wooden crates. Yeah.
6: yeah. Yeah. One of them. Uh, Evelyn was buried wow. in one of them. Another testimony there was... Um, a down syndrome girl, she'd had a baby, uh they brought her down, the nun did with a couple of other girls. Uh she didn't have a clue God loved her. She's down syndrome. God love her like. And uh the child was buried. Uh the testimonies there quite clearly there was no priest, there was no there was no rites you know, the rituals um, a christian burial a christian burial which well I, I ironically like you know you would think like by the and I, by the way, i'm not against organized religion but you would think with the theology and the application of you know the commandments and that and what they were teaching in this in in the in the in the society in the catechism that you know an infant would have got a burial a, a girl would have got a decent burial
3: but no but
6: no we did you we, 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 did we you look
3: Did you look at the front page of the examiner yesterday, Catherine, with all the names?
6: I did. I did. God, it was powerful, wasn't it? Uh, It was. And I want to thank, I want to thank the examiner. I want to, I want to thank Sylvia Bowes and others that have helped us on our journey to get our voices heard. Because for a long time, we we try to speak out about the mortality rate in Besra. It was the highest infant death mortality rate in the country, out of all the institutions. We tried for the last five years and has been tortured because all she wants is to be able to go and sit and have her moment, visit her child's grave. That's all. Anyone anyone who's affected by this, I have siblings. That have 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 uh, brothers and sisters buried in Belsbrad. I have women that have not gone out public that a baby buried in Belsbrad. They have the right to walk in there and be anonymous and sit on a bench and put down put down a bunch of flowers and have their moment of peace. That's all they want.
3: Yeah, they're not looking for much. They really are not looking for much, you know, and it's the same whenever we, you know, any of us who've lost a loved one. We all, you know, many of us have a have a cemetery, a grave to go to, and just to 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 spend time, reflect, and remember.
6: Yeah, and the thing is, is that this is a basic human right, and the fact being, we gave testimony to the commission, and and Anna Garman, if she had not come out public. And God knows what would have happened with Belsborough. Because I remember we, we went two years ago, Ted China from the Workers' Party came with us. We went to a motion in Cork City chambers, the, the Cork City councillors were putting in, there was an application for rezoning about land outside Belsborough. We felt it was the thin edge of the wedge that if they got that rezoning, that they would go in further into Belsborough. Mm. We were we were screamed at and so thought we weren't we we were dismissed. We were told we weren't we didn't know what we were talking about. So we were the we were the girls that were in Besbra. My friend was the girl that nearly died in childbirth and her baby died and was buried in Besbra. And we were very respectful in the chambers. But I always remember one particular councillor coming out to the foyer afterwards and saying to me, they will be developing Besbra. And there will be a picnic area. And I said, why? Well, You're going to tell the new residents above there that they're picnicking up to have a kid, women, and children.
5: Hmm.
3: Okay, listen, uh, Catherine, it certainly is an issue that's not going to go away. But I mean, listen, take comfort from the fact that even the Children's Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, is uh, certainly behind you on this one. Uh, we we'll leave it there, Catherine. We'll no doubt speak again. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining Thank us. You so much. Good morning to you. Bye bye, Catherine. Uh, Coffee O'Brien, a survivor of Besmer.
2: Court today on
4: C103 with McCroom Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See com.
3: With a lot of people upset by the slow rollout of the COVID 19 vaccine, a Cove dental practice have, has offered their services to help the HSE roll out the vaccine locally. Gronja Call of the Cove Dental Clinic uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Gráinne. Good morning, Patricia. How are yeah, you? I'm very well, and, and you're welcome. Have dentists ever been involved in a vaccine rollout before?
7: No, we haven't. But we're uh, we're connected with the HSE, a lot of dental, dental practices are, we're sort of set in locally and we're completely trained up to all those procedures. So it wouldn't be a large step at all for us to step up and connect with the HSE and do whatever is needed.
3: Do you believe other dental practices would follow suit?
7: Oh, absolutely. Um, both the Irish Dental Association and the British Dental Association, the feeling amongst dentists is that they're literally waiting to be called up.
3: And you're you're ideally suited in that you have practices, you know, you have clinics already in place. We
7: have clinics in place. We've got trained nursing staff. We've got trained reception staff where most uh, general dentists are central to their communities. Like most, uh, I'm in Cove, so there's a few dental practices within the community. So once there would be a rollout, people won't have to, say, go more than five kilometres and we will be there and the, also the doctor's practices. So between us, people could just stay locally and once the vaccines are available, we could do a very fast
3: rollout. Well done, well done. Have you had any re- any reaction to your offer from the HSC?
7: No, um, but um, there was something from the Arts Association the other day that said that they are talking to the HSC, but I haven't heard directly myself.
3: Okay, okay.
7: And as, as dentists, have you been vaccinated yet? No. Nope. No, yeah, I no. Think, I think a lot of, um, sort of the, the frontline people who aren't in hospitals, uh, dentists, doctors, you know, uh, practice nurses, um, I think a lot of us just haven't heard anything.
3: Yeah, we're certainly hearing it from GPs as well. And I mean, even though level five restrictions are underway, you're at work every day. We're at work every day, yeah, and we're frontline.
7: We're dealing with, with patients and, um, yeah, so ourselves and the GPs are, we're kind of a bit let down by the HSE at the moment. But having said that, everyone feels that their need is more important than anybody else. I know. But I, I do know. feel that as we're frontline. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with people in very close proximity. So we really should be vaccinated ourselves and
3: our team, of course. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I think the general population would 100% support you uh, on that one because it's frustrating to see in some of the hospitals that management and admin teams in hospitals were even prioritised ahead of frontline staff.
7: I know. I find this like quite shocking. Now, I can understand if you're, say, you know, hospital porter in the kitchen. You say, "Well, I don't want to be. Maybe if I'm COVID positive, I could spread it to people." But having said that, them taking um, skipping the queue over frontline people is just beyond comprehension.
3: Yeah, and management and admin staff, it just it does seem a bit a yeah. b- bizarre, uh, for sure. How busy are you at at your dental practice?
7: We're we're very busy. We're um, keeping a distance between patients. Um so in actual fact, we have um, we're kind of have a list of people waiting to get in for appointments rather than the other way around. But we have to space people out so we don't want like a crowded waiting room or. You know, this kind of thing. So we're taking all the, 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 the precautions and take the temperatures and, you know, our medical issues and all the rest. But yes, we're there there is a big demand and people, I think, are afraid as well that we might close down again. I
3: know, I know. And I mean, when, when you get stick. a well, if you get a toothache, you get a toothache, you need to be, you need to be uh, seen. I mean, you would always be, as dentists, you would always have worn a certain element of PPE gear. Has your PPE gear changed because of COVID?
7: As you say, we have always been frontline people and way, way, way back in the 80s when, like, HIV came in. And, you know, if you caught that, you were dead. Yeah. So we've been dealing with, with... barrier protection and vaccination. We're vaccinated with all the different things that we can vaccinate against. And we've been wearing our masks and our gloves for a very long time. So so we you know, we've added extra steps like asking more questions, taking temperatures, maybe more wearing shields and stuff like that and then obviously social distancing in the waiting areas. Um, but as you said, we've been gloved we've been yeah. and masked for a very long time.
3: Okay, well well done to putting the offer out to of the HSC. Let's see, will they pick you up on it, uh, gronia In the meantime, thank you for that and stay safe. Thank you very much. Thanks a million. And I'll be talking to you as well. Bye bye. That Gronia Carl who is at the Cove Dental Clinic.
4: You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
3: Just replies to some things we were looking into yesterday. Some issues that came up on the programme. Rita had contacted us yesterday about her 19-year-old son who is trying to apply for his learner permit but he needs to have a public service card. But obviously with the restrictions, the level 5 restrictions they're not issuing public service cards where you have to turn up in person because you need to get your photograph taken and she says what's he going to do? He needs to apply for his learner permit You can't apply for your learner permit uh, without a public service card so he kind of got caught in a little bit of a vicious circle. Anyway we get on to the welfare department who tell us that yes they are limiting the people coming into the office for obvious reasons uh, with uh, COVID-19 and they are limiting the walk in opening hours in in their intro centres uh, to three half days uh, a week but they've suspended all the face-to-face appointments which includes you have to have a face-to-face appointment in order to get a public services card but they tell us exceptions can be made for urgent cases and circumstances where the customer has no alternative means of accessing a public services card other than by calling in in person and needs to get the public services card uh, because they, are, they need to access a public service and they need to have their card for that. So, Rita, if you get back onto the office, get your son to explain what's going on, an appointment will be made for him. And then Maria had been on to us as a resident in Milford, without water since Monday. She said Irish Water gave them no warning. Uh, she couldn't even get an update and she was explaining to us in the housing estate where she lives, there's a number of young families, there's also elderly uh, residents but her main point was, you know, we're living in the middle of a pandemic. We're being told that we've got to constantly wash our hands and she is a community carer and she's wondering if we could find out shed any light of what was going on with water in Milford. So, we get to Irish Water. They tell us. A burst water has caused supply disruption in Milford Village throughout the day. This obviously was yesterday. They say crews from Irish Water and Cork County Council are on the ground carrying out repairs and they expect the repair to be completed by early evening. Now, I'm assuming that was yesterday evening. So, Maria, let us know, is your water back? They say supplies should be returning over the following hours as the network refills. Now, they go on to say that they regret any inconvenience caused by what they say ...unplanned issue. The reason for it was there had been a large number of bursts and leaks in the area following the recent spell of freezing cold weather and they say the crews have been working hard to repair those bursts as quickly as possible in line with COVID-19 protocols so they're doing the best that they can and let's you know, credit you to the workers who have to go out in all kinds of conditions when they get burst pipes like that. So that's the reason for it. So hopefully that's been sorted and the good people of Milford have their water back. John has been on to us, one of our listeners to say he believes that if uh, if this is about off licences and the amount of cold We've had from people saying we should be closing off licences or at least limiting the opening hours of off licences. Well, John is against that and he makes the point that if off licences were closed, he firmly believes it would lead to more people heading to the doctors and going on antidepressants. He says just because people have a few drinks at home, it doesn't mean that they're alcoholics, but it might just having a few drinks might just relax them and help them cope with the stresses and strains of living through a pandemic. He reckons we would have a major mental health problem in this country in the long run if we decided to close off off licenses. Do you agree or disagree with John? 1850 And then there was a call in from i just seeing where all my papers are gone. This is from Dolores in the City. Uh, Dolores thinks that we need to close the airports for once and for all. We just need to close all of the airports and all of the ports. She's fearful of people who come into this uh, country, even if they have a negative test. She is fearful that they may not show symptoms for a few days. She said, can we really trust people who come into this uh, country to self isolate? We know we tell them to self isolate but at the end of the day, some of these people may not even be from the country and they may not be worried about it at all. Dolores feels that with coronavirus, we need to treat it live Like a war. And remember, from this Saturday, all people arriving in the Republic of Ireland will have to produce a negative pre departure test for uh, COVID. It's similar to the rule that has been in place uh, for the last couple of weeks for people coming from. The UK are people coming from uh, South Africa. Uh, They've had to do this for the last number of weeks. But from Saturday, every single arrival into Ireland, ports and airports must have a negative COVID test. And they have to have that test done three days before they arrive or they won't be allowed in. Uh, And and I know already people are worried about the UK strain because even if you come from the UK and you have your negative COVID test, you still have to self-isolate for 14 days for everybody else coming from red zones. You produce your negative COVID test. If you get another test done five days after arriving, then you won't have to restrict your movements. But people from the UK and from South Africa must restrict their movement for 14 days, even with a negative COVID-19 test. And it looks like Brazil is going to be added to this list because there is now another strain of the virus, a mutant strain that has been discovered in Brazil and you'd worry about it coming out of Brazil because Brazil has had one of the worst cases of uh, COVID-19. This is a new mutant strain. They say again similar to the UK strain, similar to the South African one in that it is highly contagious as of yet it's not known if the brazilian strain is present in ireland or in the uh, uk uh, but it i know already in in england they have decided to ban All flights, I think not just from the UK, I think they've decided to ban all flights from South America because they're so concerned. I mean, the cases in the UK of COVID-19, the daily positivity on top of the number of deaths. It's just it's really shocking what is going on in the UK. And as of yet, they don't have a strain. This Brazilian strain hasn't shown up in the UK, but they are, they're really concerned about it. So what they're, going to, what they're going to do in the UK is they're going to uh, announce that no flights allowed in, not just from Brazil. They're talking about not allowing any flights in from the whole of South America. That's their plan. And it is looking like the government here may follow suit. We may follow what they're doing in the uh, UK. Brazil has had one of the highest COVID death tolls 205,000 people have died in Brazil. So that's yet another uh, strain of it and, and I take it when Dolores in the city hears that she's saying all the more reason why we need to close our airports and close our ports. 1850 Mary in Mill Street said she went to school in the 50s, was beaten very badly by teachers. She said it wasn't just me, there were many others. I feel that today we in society also deserve a government apology like the apology that was given yesterday by Michael Martin to those that went through the mother and uh, baby homes we deserve apology for the teachers of the past and Mary Misfried also says please think today of those who adopted those babies and reared them it must be tough for them listening to all of this as well yeah, yeah that is a good point and of course none of those adoptive parents who came forward to adopt children and you know they in the majority were people who desperately wanted a child either there was fertility issues or they weren't able to have any more children or in some cases families just wanted to offer a nice secure home to what they believed was somebody who would be living in an orphanage if they didn't you know if they didn't try and adopt and they did it with all of the best intentions and of course Parents who adopted had no idea about what was going on in the uh, mother and baby homes. And William in Glanmire is on about the issue of redress. We're hearing about redress and we know that the commission has said that, you know, the redress screen must be set up for the survivors of the mother and baby homes. And Mihaul Martin said, Absolutely, a redress scheme is going to be set up. And then yesterday we had three of the religious sisters who the orders that were involved in the running of these homes saying yes they are willing to get involved in in a redress scheme. Uh, but Willie's just worried about a redress scheme because he said we have had other redress schemes in the past and he names two hepatitis C and the HIV tribunal that all all happened, all agreed to pay out to survivors of both of those controversies. And he said many of those are still waiting. And actually there's a piece, I don't know if this is today's or yesterday's paper, saying that the Hepatitis C in the HIV Compensation Tribunal paid out more than 8 million in awards in 2019, but still another 411 initial claims still await hearing. So William says, even if they do set up a scheme, how long will people have to wait? When you look how long ago it was, for the the for the for the hepatitis uh, scheme the the that was the tribunal then to compensate those infected with contaminated blood it was back in 1995 my god and here we are in 2021, and we're hearing there are 411 initial claims still awaiting hearing. Which is, so Willie is saying to those people who'll be waiting on redress. Hope well. Let's hope that they learn from past mistakes and that the redress scheme uh, will operate and will operate efficiently. And those that deserve to be paid out under the redress scheme get paid and get paid uh, quickly. Thanks for that, Willie. Nora in Bantry was saying. This is to do with those that were buried in Besber and those that were buried in Tume. And we assume all of the mother and baby homes in some way have these unmarked burial sites of these little babies that would have died in the homes in Bessborough, remember 923. And I thought Catherine who joined us, one of the survivors of Besborough, also made a good point. There was women who died, women who died in childbirth and women who remained on in Besborough. So there was women who died as well and they're all in unmarked graves and where are those graves and Oh, you know the reason why you don't want a big development a building development to go on top of a site like that that basically is a graveyard It, you know it is a graveyard Nora wonders those that were uh, buried did they say prayers over the people as they were burying particularly these little babies it's so heartbreaking I wonder did the priests or nuns say a prayer for the, all of those innocent little babies well when I asked Catherine what she knew about Bessborough, she was saying that it was a caretaker in the main, did a lot of the burials, there wasn't a priest, none of the nuns attended the burial. And I heard and I'm open to question, but I think it was the story I heard out of Chum, the Chewm, uh baby home, that it was a caretaker there, Stroke Gardner, who used to bury the little babies, and it was just you know a little box would be handed, and off he'd go to this place where where he was bar- was burying them, and of course we know many of them ended up in the septic tank in Chum as well, but he used to say. He used to whisper a little prayer into their ear, but that was just something that that kind gentleman uh, decided to do. But no, from what we are hearing, there certainly wasn't any priest or any nun praying over the bodies of those uh, little babies, which is, yeah, adds to the sadness, does it not? Getting a report in of a truck has hit the railway bridge on the lower Glenmire Road. And there are traffic delays as a result. OK, so avoid the lower Glanmar Road near the railway bridge uh, because a truck has uh, hit it. OK, some of your texts coming in. Can I take a look at some of your uh, texts? Oh, on the offer that we had in the last hour from Grainne the a dentist in uh, Cove, saying, look, dentists are ready. We'll roll out the vaccine uh, for you. Listener says, hi, Patricia. My daughter, who's a nurse, got her vaccine on Sunday, fantastic and it was a retired dentist that gave it to her. So dentists are well able to to, well they give injections all the time anyway don't they? So that's terrific to hear thank you for that. On the vaccines hi uh, Patricia we've all heard that there has been some queue jumping for the vaccine favouritism been given to some family members. Sure it wasn't that bound to happen Uh, this is good old Ireland after all but did anyone hear the suggest That maybe players of elite sports like the GAA should be on a priority list? I mean, what the? Says this text. Are the GAA becoming the new clergy in Ireland? In all fairness, I think it was Garod Hegarty of Limerick said he wouldn't approve of such a move. I didn't I didn't hear it but I thought when I was when I was speaking with Gronny Kal as a dentist I do think dentists and GPs they are frontline workers I do think they should be on some kind of a priority list but Gronny was ma- even making the point everybody has a reason why I should be a priority and why our group of people should be a priority I know there's a lot of talk of the teachers organizations and the teachers unions are coming out saying well if you're sending us back into the classroom then we should be a priority you should be giving us the vaccine as well so yeah I think everybody has a reason as to why they should be uh, top of the uh, list. And just we were hearing yesterday, and this is to do with the pressure that our hospitals are under, that health workers who are deemed close contacts but are not showing symptoms of COVID-19, they've been called back to work into the health service. Uh, the HSC's Chief Operations Officer, Anne O'Connor, was speaking yesterday. She said asymptomatic close contacts were being monitored while at work by occupational health experts. She said the decision was made due to the shortage of healthcare uh, workers. It comes as pressure and the acute hospital system for COVID-19 continues to increase. The hospitals most affected by cases, we know our own Cork University Hospital, followed by University Hospital Limerick and St Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin, they all have the highest number of cases and just there at the news at 11 that number has even gone up again uh, today. Uh, It's over 17,000 patients now are in, are being treated in hospital for COVID-19 but there is in excess of 7,000 people in the healthcare nursing home and community services sector who were unable to work for various reasons including being COVID positive are being unable to access childcare. At the weekend, you may have heard there was a call put out for any staff who was available to come into work in Letterkenny. They, were, they put the shout out to anyone who was on a day off, please come in. They were under so much pressure and the worry is that that initial call went out from Letterkenny but we could be seeing, see that happening in other sites. Uh, the reality, the HSC said, is the demand is so high the staff are needed at work and given the level of absenteeism it's become very difficult across the board not just in hospitals but in nursing home settings uh, as well and because of that the decision has been made that for for health workers who are deemed close contacts they should be staying at home for 14 days they've been called back to work uh, instead and staff are being tested before returning to work and they will be monitored closely and that decision was made yesterday well that prompted a text in from a listener to say I think the HSE advice for staff who are asymptomatic returning to work is very irresponsible says this texter and she cites an example I know of somebody who had been a very, in very close contact with her boyfriend her boyfriend had tested positive she was told by the HSE to, see to continue at work in her hospital until her results were returned. She subsequently tested positive but in the meantime she'd been back at work risking infecting any of those of her close contacts both other staff and patients. So somebody's saying irresponsible to expect close contacts but like are they damned if they do and damned if they don't? Are we, are we going to get to the stage we've heard of wards that have had to be closed down because there's not enough staff either the staff are out COVID positive? Are they were deemed uh, a close contact and if you have in excess of 7,000 people in our healthcare system out at the moment some it has to give somewhere and I don't know what the breakdown is of the over 7,000 it would be interesting to get or it would be really good to have a look at that figure of the 7,000 how many are COVID positive obviously they can't go back to work and how many are close contacts uh, but it's the close contacts that have been called back to work. 1850-333-103. John Paul continues to take your calls. You can text our WhatsApp 0862-103-103. See 103 jobs. An office administrator is wanted for the rail area. A good working knowledge of Microsoft Word and Excel is necessary. Pickers and drivers wanted for Caulfield Super Value. They're based at Riverview Shopping centre that's in uh, Bandon, uh, while general operatives are wanted for Irish Yogurt's that's in Clonakilty, and a driver is wanted for Blackwater Metal Recycling in Booterway. You need to have full CE licence and a CPC uh, essential. You'll get more details by going online www.c103.ie forward slash jobs
2: Court today on C103
4: with McCroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids the place to order your 211 Toyota see mccroommotors.com
3: Continuing to get reaction to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report, some of your comments in Hi Patricia, rather than building apartments on the site at Besborough, I genuinely think that a park for children, a few little fairy gardens, some trees and of course a plaque in memory of all of the mams and their babies. um, For the babies it would surely be a sacred garden. Yeah, that's a lovely, lovely thought. And Catherine, who joined us, one of the survivors, Catherine Coffey O'Brien, one of the the survivors uh, who said she remembers a, a politician saying to her that there will be a development at uh, Besber. Uh, she reckons Catherine should name that politician because it almost sounded like a veiled threat to uh, Catherine Hi uh, Patricia I totally agree with Besborough being left as a memorial graveyard it should literally be left untouched then those little babies could all rest in uh, peace um, and, uh, and and it's great now that everything has been highlighted uh, for them and someone else says Liz says why did Miho Martin include us the citizens in his apology yesterday we didn't do it we did nothing wrong it was the man there was a man on um, the on the TV this morning who said it was a priest took him to the uh, home. It was the church who were responsible, not uh, society. Okay, let me go to the phone lines where Helen joins me. Uh, good morning to you, Helen. Good morning. Helen, you have an interesting story to tell. You worked in St. Vincent's Convent at the bottom of Cathedral Road in Cork. Now, when would this have been?
8: This would have been about 33 years ago.
3: Okay, and there was, was it a, a there was a mag was it a Magdalene laundry was there it was the laundry was there yet yeah. the
8: ladies were still working the laundry at that time
3: now were were you working with the ladies?
8: Yes, I was. I actually done a farce course and I was sent to St Vincent to um I was supposed to be doing sewing, and they had you know put on all new bedrooms for the ladies, and they were doing the whole place up and But as it turned out, I became friendly with them. And I didn't do the sewing and we got a little room and we started to do self-development and, you know, just normal things with the ladies.
3: Well done, well done. And these ladies would have been what age group, you know, from what age to what age Bearing
8: at that time from um, 50s to 80s.
3: And did many of them come out, come through the mother and baby homes? Yes,
8: they were all from the mother and baby home.
3: All of them? all
8: of them um, they would have been baby, the babies that were born there they would have been the mothers who had babies I think there was a few who had been put in there as offerings
3: and there would have been some of who would have been in the mother and baby homes whose p- family didn't want them home afterwards
8: they were, all, they were there all their lives
3: you my god
8: they went in and the stories Patricia I will tell you I've been crying for the last few days it just brings it all back um, I, I left after six months. I just couldn't couldn't take the stories and the, the sorrow. And even after that the nuns were fantastic there by the way, I have to say. The nuns yeah. at that age they were brilliant. They were brilliant to the ladies, they were brilliant to me. They would even put them on the bus. I lived in Bantry at the time. And it was you know, and they would put them on the bus and I'd collect them in Bantry and they one or two at a time would come down for weekends. <sighs> But they were like, there was one particular lady, I'll just say her name was Anne,
0: yeah. she
8: was 74 and she'd have a little snide in her hair and she'd have the giggles every time she'd see a man the head would go down and she'd be giggling delighted, you know. And my partner at the time, he was very fond of them and he was very good to them, but she was like a little 14-year-old.
3: Childlike.
8: Yeah, and they had never, you know, I took some of them downtown in turns and... You know they, they, they hadn 't a clue they had never been beyond Shandon Street
3: and t- totally institutionalized obviously
8: completely, completely, like there was one other lady I was very close to her, and she her job was to do the hoovering of the corridors, you know there was all new carpets, the place was lovely, and God love her she 'd be working away hard all day, and when you 'd look the hoover wouldn 't even have been plugged in. <sighs> Because
3: she didn't know how to use the Hoover.
8: No, she just, they hadn't a clue. But Patricia, the stories they told me, oh my gosh, there were, one lady in particular had TB. She had a very lame step. And another lady told me that she had a baby. She was only uh, 17. And she said she went into labour and she was 14 hours in labour and the baby was about to be born. The head was showing and the nuns tied her legs together, tied her knees together, because they said she hadn't suffered enough. Oh, my God. And they left her like that for another 10 hours. And she said she never saw the baby. She don't know whether the baby was dead or alive. They never told her anything. And she said she was in a terrible condition after the birth, and nothing was done for her. She was just told, get up and go back to work. Like a... It's
3: just... It's such a—it's like the cruelty. There's only one story. And actually, have you? I don't know. I don't know whether I would advise you or not. Have you looked at the report online? No, I. Yeah, and I, I. Do you know something? Listening to you because I can hear the obsession in your voice. You're probably better off not because there's so many of that type of story. It's just hard to imagine that another female, somebody who was meant to have a vocation to God, yeah. could inflict. That kind of pain. I know one of the stories I read was uh, was a pregnant woman being tied to the bed yeah. and a nun sitting up on her chest, trying to help push in, forcing her to push the baby out because the baby was, had got stuck. It was a very big baby. It was just, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, unreal. But you ended up leaving. Because you just couldn't cope about, uh, with, with... I couldn't cope with the stories. I couldn't cope with the
8: upset. I couldn't cope with the total inhumanity. It was, it, I was at the time, I'm, I'm nearly 70 now, so like 33 years ago, I would have been in my 40s. But like, I just couldn't... No, I, I had been... I got pregnant at 18 and I was forced to get married. And my husband left me when I was 20 with two children and I reared them on my own very, very hard. But I was lucky... You know, I was lucky I had my children.
3: And you were, in, in inverted commas, lucky that you got married because you could have gone down the route of the mother and baby
0: homes.
8: I could have gone down the route of the mother and baby, even though I, I didn't want to get married. I was forced to get married. And I married a very cruel man who was terribly vicious to me, nearly killed me on many occasions. His mother actually took me away from him and I lived with her for quite a lot of
3: years. And when... who? When you say forced to get married, was that from your family or was there the church was involved? Can you, what it was just
8: I was getting married and that was it. There was nothing else about it. I ran away the morning of the wedding and um, I thought I was getting married at eleven o'clock and I came back at twelve. I ran away with the dog and um I went out to the black ash. Do you ever hear of the black ash in cork?
3: I did, uh, yeah, dog yeah.
8: And I came back and my aunt was waiting for me and they threw a wedding dress on me and there was no shoes, so they gave me a pair of silver sandals to my mother and I was brought up to the church and there was a lovely wedding and everything was great. And
3: Except you didn't want to go through with it.
8: No, it was terrible.
3: My God. But
8: look, that was me, as I say, I yeah. was one of the lucky ones. Yeah,
3: because you have your two beautiful children.
8: I have two beautiful children, I have beautiful grandchildren and I thank God every day.
3: And the women in the in in that St. Vincent's, did they ever talk about their babies to you, Helen?
8: Yeah, yeah. A few of them had a little, uh, little miraculous medal, you know, the little cheapy miraculous medal. Yeah. Um. One of them told me they gave her that after the baby was born. And a few of them had those with a little blue string around their neck with the little miraculous medal hanging on it. And that was their baby.
3: Did they understand what adoption meant?
8: They did. They understood. They never knew. They never knew the few that really, some of them couldn't talk about it. Others did. But the ones that talked about it, they never knew whether they were adopted or whether they were dead or whether where they were.
3: Because the commission's report states there was no evidence of forced adoption. And I, I find that very hard to believe because a lot of the women would say, I went back to the nursery and my baby was gone or I was forced to sign paperwork. And I'm just wondering about the women that you would have dealt with. Would they have understood that they were giving consent for their babies to be adopted? And it doesn't sound like they would have.
8: There was No, there were some of them were very intelligent. Another lady, her name was Noreen. She was kind of like over the women, if you know what I mean. You yeah, know? yeah. And They all looked up to her. The one in charge. Yeah. Yeah she told me that um, when you went in there you had to sign forms and that was to say that you were working for your keep. You know oh, your yeah. consent that you're like you weren't getting wages and this was working for your keep and for the keep of your baby.
3: And they didn't get paid so they, they, they got nothing. Uh,
8: not, but they did when I was there at the end they did get an oh, did allowance.
3: They? Did they? Okay. Yeah okay. And,
8: but like I mean they were old old women then, and they had a clue what to do with it. They didn't know what money was.
3: Did they ever mention their own families? Yes, yes. Yeah. One lady
8: had a brother, and um, she was crazy about the brother. Her brother always talking about the brother. She was from a and she always talked about the brother with, you know, oh, he's going to come to see me, he's going to come to see me, he's going to come to see me. And actually, one of the nuns told me at the time the brother had been the father of her child. Oh,
3: my
8: God. You know, the oh, brother never came.
3: God, it's dreadful. And there was the shame attached to it all, uh, you know, the family. Everything was to do the good name of the family. We, oh, we I experienced that could, myself. Yeah, you did, you did. God knows, God knows you did. a lovely mother and father, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I was brought up very, very
8: well, but they thought more of what people would think, mm. you know, and like, you know, it was
3: instead of thinking of their own child. I
8: remember one instance of taking one particular lady down to Rochester's at the time in Patrick Street to buy a pair of boots. And the nuns were very good, they gave them the money and I went off with her. And we got down past the Northgate Bridge and she got a panic attack. She'd never been beyond there in her life. And we carried on down and we got down to Patrick Street and she was kind of cowering down, you know. And, like, I remember saying to her, come on, or buck up now. I mean, we're going to get your new boots and your, you know. But she couldn't. We had to go back. And on the way back, there's little shops at the top of Shandon Street. And there was these women, two women, talking outside one. And, like, this lady used to walk very hunched with her head down and her, her eyes looking up, you know. And one of them said, oh, look at your one. She's with one of the crazies. Catholic.
3: Well, you know, like, that's what society was like.
8: Yeah, and there was a woman who had a shop somewhere in the top of Shandon Street and she had a contract of bringing up the dresses to the women. It was all the same dress, buttoned down the front, like a collar, you know, like a, like a shirt and a belt, but they were different colours. So they all had the same dresses, they all had the same hairstyle, they all had the same shoes.
3: So institutionalised.
8: Yeah, it was... And you know, even when it came, it, it was brilliant that they'd done fabulous food. And when I said, the nuns there, there was the nun that was in charge. There was a lady; she was absolutely fantastic. Right. And she did talk to me. She said, "We'll never make it up to these women to what happened to them."
3: But she was trying.
8: She, they were doing everything they could in their power, you
3: know. Well, um, do, do you reckon they have? They all passed away now, Helen, or the? I wouldn't think so. No. No. I wonder where they are.
8: There was one or two of those nuns weren't much older than me at the time.
3: And the w- the women themselves, would there be many of them still alive? I'd say there would be some of them
8: alive, but the majority would, wouldn't be.
3: I wonder where they are now. I are, don't know. Are the they in th- nursing homes somewhere? They've been cared for in nursing homes, I wonder. Well, there were some of the younger ones. There was about
8: six of them that they had a little cottage that they were trying to get them back into normal life. And that was the first stage. And then they would get a little flat after that.
3: Yeah. But they'd it's, find it very hard to live independently, wouldn't they, after a life like that?
8: Yeah. And they actually you know they, they they there was a great um animosity towards each other to some of them because some of them like were bossy, you know,
3: yeah, yeah,
8: and the other ones then of course couldn't take that, and you know
3: well the, the bossy ones was probably how they survived over the years, and they they, they just
8: yeah it was look uh, i I tell, you, Patricia. I'm crying for the last three days.
3: I know, I know.
8: I only like it's all very fine talking about oh this happened and that happened and that happened but when you actually saw the women and saw what I had done to them and saw like that other people, nuns, I mean I had nuns gone to school and they were bitches, I'll be honest with you. They were bitches.
3: But at least you were going home, you could escape it. At
8: least I go home and you couldn't tell your parents because the nuns were gods, you know. But like I I, I just I can't believe like we talk about Germany and we talk about what happened in the Holocaust and this is Ireland, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, uh you've you've shared an amazing story and and thank you for sharing it because it, it it brings those women to life as well and, that's, it's, and it's important that they are remembered you know it was like yesterday when I saw the front page of the examiner and the 923 names of the little babies and some of those could have been some of the babies of some of the women that you cared for yeah. and I felt it was important to read out their names to say their names these were little babies that lived and you know you're speaking about their mothers the and m- they, 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 they lived name citizens best. of this country and deserve to be treated better. Listen, look after yourself and thank you for that. I really appreciate your call.
8: OK. Look, God bless. Tell them all light a candle. Tell people light a candle
3: for that. That's the right attitude. Thanks for that, Helen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. 1850 Line's open.
2: Court today on C103.
4: With McCroom Motors. Leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See macrooemotors.com.
3: And Tom joins us from the city. Uh, good morning to you, Tom. Good morning, Patricia. Tom, you you went to school in the North Mon and that was across the road from Magdalene Laundry. laundry. Yes. OK, and what, what, what do you remember growing up?
5: Well, you'd be sent to the laundry to pick up the, the laundry in the end of the week, the, the sheets and the pillowcases and so forth. And you could smell the brown paper and the starch and the cleansiness as you are going in the door. It was spotless. But... Just below the laundry then, there was a loading day where the boilers are situated. And when the host car would come, put back in there to take the coal off. And it was the girls came out with the boiler suits and their face was black and so forth, taking the bags of coal off. Now, there were the inmates, which were called the penitents.
3: Oh, they, were, they were paying back for their sins if they were called the penitents? Yes, they
5: were put in by their but families. But you're, you're saying...
3: The coal truck backed up with bags of coal on it, yes. and and normally it's the coal men who take the coal off. You're saying it was the women themselves, the yes, girls. The did women it.
5: used to take the bags of coal off. There was only one man driving the horse. My gosh! And uh, you you would say to the the grandmother and them and you would go for the lunch that you see the, the 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 girls taking off the coal, and she'd say, "Oh, they're only the penitents," which sure, we didn't know what the penitents were those days.
3: But you, as a child, realised that there was something wrong with these young girls, young women. When,
5: yes, but you see, when you be waved off, then you say you'll just forget about it, I should dare need the penitence. Well, to me, like they were the people that were working there. Yeah. So even e- any, it was a kind of a cover-up job.
3: Yeah. So your grandmother, your nanny, even yes. believed. That they were yes. sinners, so they were yes. penitents. They were and that's, that's what society believed, though. Society believed that they had to pay back for their sins.
5: Yes, but look, Patricia, it's just that the, the, the monks, as we call them, in the monastery at the time, if you were a minute late, the long corridor, the door would be closed in the bottom, so you'd have to come in the other door. And when you come in the other door, you'll be beaten viciously with the leather from those monks. Now, when you go to the grandmother then for your lunch, you'd say to her nanny, the monk caught me this morning and he beat me around the hall. And need she'd up for I hand, to be a clatter.
0: Yeah.
5: I... You get another clatter to shut up, she don't believe you. Yeah. They're holy men. Yeah. But getting back to the penitents that they were called in. On the Sunday, and you would see them coming out the door below the laundry, and they're going to the North Cathedral in the afternoon for prayers. You would see maybe about twenty of them, and none at the front, and none in the middle, and a none at the back. And they had those kind of grey uniforms, coats, with the square high heels at the back. They were really like, um, oh, industrial.
3: They were all dressed the same. Exactly yes. what Helen was oh, saying.
5: And yeah. their hair would be straight along the back. Yeah, all the same haircut. You knew there was something wrong, but you see, when, when they were called up, oh, they are only the penitents. Yeah. Just, we didn't know who the penitents was.
3: It's a different era, isn't it? And, and do you know the one thing that comes through, and certainly on the Commission's report, the the power that the Church had, be it the parish priest, be it the bishop or be it the nuns. They had um, power.
5: I was listening this morning uh, I'm sure it was um, Radio Kerry I think it was listening there earlier this morning too. Um, I forget his name now. But and this person came on and they mentioned about the troubles that were there when De Valera was there and so forth and so forth and it was still not cleaned up. But you had um, oh was he announced archbishop of the cardinal at the time? So it was church and state were running the country. Yeah. McQuaid was his name.
3: Yeah, John McQuaid, the famous John yeah. McQuaid, yeah.
5: Now yeah. whatever John McQuaid wanted to do or whatever the Devilera wanted to do, that was law.
3: Yeah. It was. It was. I because I heard some Fine Gael politician. I don't know if he was Taoiseach at the time or who it was uh, when he was asked and um, uh, about. And he he was Catholic first, and then he was Irish. But he was Catholic first, so it was the the church came before the state, which is it's, yes. it's a different era. Yes.
5: All right, listen, Tom. Well, thank- no, before you go, Priscilla, yeah. Me, Hall Martin, is only living not too far from Bessborough. Yeah, he knows exactly what's going on.
3: Do you think that that site should be preserved as a graveyard? Yes. Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I, I can't find anyone in that area who doesn't.
5: I've been on the Nevin Road there last year, and I met a lone an old lady coming down, and I was looking at a building across the road, and I just said, "Well, she like, what is that building?'" And she said, "Oh, don't tell me now." She said, "She had actually been in there to the modern baby home on the Nevin Road, which is attached to uh, to Sacred Heart." poor woman just said that it should have been knocked down but what they were doing was taking the roof off, taking the windows out and they assuming it's going to be a hotel or whatever.
3: And you could see the pain in her face?
5: Yes so the thing is it goes on and goes on and goes on and no matter how many times she'd pass up and down a day she'd look over and she'd remember the pain and suffering she got in there.
3: Okay, listen Tom, thank you.
5: So to me that that truck below, that Besborough should never be touched,
3: and, and even and as, as Catherine said, a graveyard not be left
5: in there. The big shot should not be left in there because the, the, the amount of ground down there, it's infested with bodies in there. Should never ever be touched.
3: Okay, on that note, we leave it, Tom. Thank you for that, and thanks okay, uh, for sharing your good memories. Uh, good talking to you. Eighteen fifty-three-three-three-one-zero-three.
4: You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. A number of people saying how
3: taken they were by the stories we shared in the last hour from Helen and from Tom, but particularly uh, from uh, Helen and her stories about working with the women. She said no, it was about 30 years ago, but she could see the devastating effect having been raised in institutions and the women who ended up in the mother and baby homes, the devastation that it had on their lives and never left them, never left them. Uh, Tim says, nobody picked up on a suggestion that I made earlier in the week that the Garda, any of the Garda commissioners still alive should be made face up to the fact That the Gardi at the time played a role in standing beside the priests and, in many cases, taking the unmarried pregnant women to the mother and baby homes. Uh, Tim also feels the caretakers and the gardeners who put the bodies in the graves should be ostracised also for their part in their silence. Every segment of the programme shows more and more what was covered up by the uh, Commission. whatever about the the I think the caretakers and the gardeners, I don't know, we're talking about a very different era. This was people's jobs if they didn't do their job, they wouldn't get paid if they didn't get paid, their families wouldn't get fed and One of the few acts of kindness I saw for the babies that died was the gardener I heard about who was instructed to bury the babies on behalf of the nuns, and he used to whisper a prayer into their ears, so he was trying to show some kind of kindness to those little babies who had passed away so oh, i I don't know Tim about the guard i don't know, know what how how, how I think you're wrong on the caretakers and the gardens. I think it's a different era and it was the job it was the job that they had had to do Okay, some questions coming in for Jane thank you by the way Tim for your comment Uh, some questions coming in for Jane our resident vet keep those coming to us please Meg says the religious used to say sure your sins will find you out now at long last their sins are being found out says uh, Meg Okay, uh, and a good news story says another listener I know of a mother and her son who have made contact after being separated through adoption many, many years ago. They've been in contact now for the past few months and it has brought lots of happiness to both sides. I believe both sides had been trying to contact each other over the years but were continuously blocked by nuns and by social workers. My God. Yeah, and I I said it earlier on in the programme, I really am hoping that the one thing this commission will do is it'll break down some of the barriers that have been put before people trying to make contact with birth parents and birth mothers trying to make contact and find out where their children ended up and hopefully we'll get lots more of those reunions and please God a lot of those reunions will work out well because they don't always work out for everyone but hopefully uh, someday they will. Okay some other comments coming in to us. Let me see where I'm going on vaccines. Lots, lots of people talking about vaccines. John says, Patricia people should be haunting the government for vaccines there is no way out of this hole that we find ourselves in a hole which I feel the government has led us into this year is going to be like a big car crash it looks like we won't be coming out of lockdown until everybody is vaccinated but when is that going to happen is this time period going to go down in history of course it will we'll have a Taoiseach apologising for the bad decisions made by the government of today in 30 years time mark my words that is the reality of this we have bleak days ahead we are a pity now says John we need to speed up the vaccines and on the decision by the HSE to call back in health workers who were close contacts they should be self-isolating for 14 days but as we heard again on the news at 12 midday they're so short on staff they're getting on to close contacts and if they don't have any symptoms come into work please and they will monitor them and they will test them But some people are nervous about that, including a West Cork listener says, Okay, so say I'm a close contact and I get ordered back into work in the hospital where I'm working. Firstly, I'd like to see being ordered back to work in these circumstances. I'd like to see that stand up in a court. Say I end up being COVID positive and I go on to infect a patient. What happens if that patient passes away and it can be directly linked back to the work that I was doing and the fact that I had been a close contact? And the fact that I didn't know that I had COVID-19, what then? The HSC, who will be held liable? And that's a West Cork listener not agreeing with the HSC who are saying to uh, workers, as long as they're asymptomatic. But they say they will monitor them. But I accept the point you're making. We've all heard of cases of somebody who has been back in the day when they were testing, when they were testing close contacts, they could test negative. And then they were called back, remember one stage after seven days for a second test, and they'd be positive on the seventh day, even though they would have had no symptoms. I also heard of somebody who was somebody who contacted us who was deemed a close contact, and they, it was after christmas around Christmas when too many people were going forward for testing, so they took the decision not to, not to test uh, close contacts, but this particular person was a close contact, so it was self isolating and all of that, absolutely zero uh, symptoms and on day ten of the 14 days of restrict, re- restrictions. Start, now, had been nowhere, started to feel unwell, contacted his doctor, said, oh, The doctor said, You're now going to have to go forward for a test. And then on day 12, I tested positive. So, yeah. It's, it's a risk. It certainly is a risk. John says, Patricia, it looks like a lovely new year, doesn't it? This government need to go, according to John. They're asleep at the wheel. We need to lock this country down. I can't see why all of our airports and ports are open. What a waste of money. Surely when it comes to airports, one airport would be enough when the argument is put forward that we need to have airports open for cargo uh, etc. But the, on passengers coming in, I, when I mentioned the new restrictions are in place now from this Saturday everybody flying into Ireland has to have a negative Covid test. I saw an aviation expert on one of the news programmes yesterday reckoning that this is going to have a huge knock on effect. People who were planning on travelling if they're forced to get a private Covid test and it has to be one done in a lab and there's a cost involved in that, that it actually is going to reduce the number of people who were planning on travelling to uh, Ireland. So we may not need to close the airports. There may be very few people deciding to travel um, at all. Joe in Dummanway is agreeing with John one of our listeners who came on earlier and who felt there was no reason why we should close off licences and he was talking about mental health and he said it's not that people who go out and buy a few cans of beer or a bottle of wine it's not that they're roaring alcoholics but they just like to have a few drinks to unwind Joe says 100% agree with John. We have two small drinks at the end of the day to unwind and chill out. We drink plenty of water during the day. We exercise twice a day. So try and stop us having a drink at home all on our own, says uh, Joe. And Joe, I'd say you're not the only ones who do that for a little bit of unwinding. Just a couple of drinks, one drink, maybe a glass of wine with the meal, with dinner or whatever. And of course, if they close off licences, everybody gets uh, affected uh, by uh, it. And then this is on... Dro- or then back to the Mother and Baby Homes Mary in Galbali says Catholic Ireland how are you who would want it listening to the stories coming out from the Mother and Baby Home Commission and this is on, on someone with a driving test Hi Patricia, I arrived at my daughter in Mallow yesterday morning to do a driving lesson. Her driving instructor got a phone call from another person that was due to do a test. This woman wouldn't now be able to take the test because she doesn't have a letter from her employer. Surely that's very unfair on young drivers or anyone that's at home like a stay-at-home mum or dad. My daughter, for example, was due to do her test in February but because she's a stay-at-home home mum, she won't now be able to get a letter from an employer so she won't be able to take her test. My daughter has a Son of three, and he needs to be taken to school every day, and other reasons why she needs to be able to drive. Yeah, and the RSA this came out under the new level five uh, restrictions. The driving tests are still running, but it's only for essential workers and people who have already got a driving test uh, appointment. If you're an essential worker, you're told to turn up but it says, and I'm reading from the RSA site, if you have a test appointment and are not a person involved in the provision of essential service, please cancel your test appointment. They tell you how to do it and you'll be assigned, the the slot then will be assigned for essential workers and obviously they're asking people who are essential workers to bring a letter with them. I didn't realise that because someone had said to me, how do you prove or not that you're an essential worker but it seems you need to bring a letter uh, with you. But I wonder if, you re- if your daughter has a test date and that seems like a pretty genuine enough reason if she's a three year old who needs to be taken to school and if she needs to get out and about and she needs to try and pass her test, could she apply to the RSA, could she make contact with them and explain her reasons and and maybe maybe they'll allow it to go ahead I don't know but as of now it is only for essential workers that's all they are saying to people they're the only ones that should turn up for uh, testing and somebody else says Patricia when will retail staff when will they be considered frontline workers because yeah God knows the retail staff have been out there from day one during all of the lockdowns they never closed never once and when are they deemed frontline workers I haven't seen them anywhere on the list I have to say Hang in there though, um, hopefully, as when if the AstraZeneca vaccine can get the go-ahead, that's the one I think that's going to be the game-changer because we have the biggest number of orders in for that particular vaccine. And it's not just Ireland. I saw a report earlier on that Angela Merkel in Germany is in big trouble as well. They don't have enough vaccines. The EU now are accepting that they didn't order enough of the Pfizer or the Moderna one to start with. The biggest order, they seem to have put almost all their apples in one basket. They were almost banking on the Oxford AstraZeneca getting the go-ahead and they've ordered the biggest amount of vaccines from them. But, of course, they still they have the go-ahead in England, but they haven't had the go-ahead in Europe uh, yet. Uh, Patricia, why do patients have to avail of the cross-border directive? It's back in the news again. Instead of the HSC using the funds that they pay to the private hospitals in Belfast, why can't they use that funds to book treatment in private hospitals in Ireland? We're constantly being told to shop local. Would it not make more sense to support private facilities here I 100% agree with you but that's never happened unfortunately but yeah you make absolute sense 1850 333 103 The C103 Cork Diary
4: With Cork County Council Supporting businesses Supporting communities Serving Cork Visit CorkCoco.ie
3: The staff of Daily Industrial Supply Company are aiming to collectively walk, run, cycle, hike and swim 1,200 kilometres during the month of January it's an effort to raise money for the Cork Simon community. If you would like to help out, you can donate through their Just Giving page. If you're involved in any charity or community event that you would like us to advertise free of charge, please just email info at c103.ie.
2: Cork Today on C103.
4: With McCroom Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See
3: And we're going to guard the station for this week. Uh, Garth of the Fire where I'm joined by Inspector Ian uh, O'Callaghan. Good morning to you Ian. Good afternoon uh, Good Fisher, afternoon as you? it is. I'm very well and you're welcome uh, to the programme. Now the good news first is crime wise it's quiet
9: It has there. I was looking at crime there over the last four weeks since Cork West was last represented on the show and um, I suppose it's reflected in the fact that we've only had one burglary reported now obviously there's so many more people at home uh, through work and everything and government advice so but look, it's reassuring for people in the current climate we're in that property crime is very low uh, currently, um, so that's some positive in the in the climate we're living in.
3: Okay, you do have a report of one break-in though, looking for help that happened earlier this week.
9: That's right. Um, on the night of the eleventh, twelfth this month, that's only Monday, Monday night, Tuesday, um, gone by there. A vacant property was entered at Drumavan and a skiing and tools were stolen. Uh, there wasn't a lot of the tools stolen here in this incident, but nonetheless, for the owner of the property um, to find uh, the door forced the next morning uh, was not nice, and uh, Gardaí and Balanín are investigating that incident. So that happened in the townland of Drumavan, and a if
3: anybody saw anything, Monday, uh, Monday night into Tuesday morning. And then there was an incident in Skibbereen, and this happened on Christmas week.
9: Christmas week there, the 22nd of December, uh, that night, uh, 22nd, 23rd of December, at Cullina Skibbereen, uh building site there, four batteries were taken from two diggers. So, look, we're just highlighting that in case somebody may have heard of, of digger batteries uh, for sale for cheap prices in the locality. Um, so Gardy and Skibbereen are investigating that theft.
3: Yeah, anything like that that's too good to be true, the offer you should be straight away, alarm bells uh, should ring. And once again, you know, we start the new year with the advice that we gave throughout last year about locking your cars when parked at your house.
9: Yes, and on the night of the 29th, 30th of December, here in Bandon, Chapel Street, an unlocked car was entered and personal items were stolen. And, you know, it's probably the most easily preventable crime out there is simply to lock your car. And we did see trends last year, last 18 months, of criminals targeting vehicles outside people's homes, uh, hoping that people didn't lock their cars. And indeed, they got quite a lot of success in a lot of instances. And so, again, we're making an appeal for people to... Always lock your car, no matter how short a time period uh, it's going to be empty for.
3: Yeah, and I know, Sergeant uh, John Kelly, before Christmas, is making the point that because now, you know, all of us have zappers, you just press the button and it locks the car. But just to make sure you have locked it, sometimes you press it and you think you've locked it and you haven't.
9: That's right. That's right. It's something, it's a habit I've developed myself uh, over the years is just simply... Up your car yeah. and uh, just give it a second and just check the, check the door handle uh, that to ensure that it's locked. It's just a good habit, very good habit to get into. And again, like you don't want to wake up some morning and find that your car belonging have been, have been taken. And in a lot, some instances, uh, they have got away with quite an amount of personal items that are very difficult to replace.
3: Yeah, now pretty nasty uh, crimes happened in a housing estate in Kinsale recently.
9: Yeah, uh, a few days there before Christmas, the night of the 23rd to 24th of December. Uh, most unusual crime, um, as regards it doesn't happen too often, but very unsavoury for the residents in the Balnakuba estate in Kinsale, where seven vehicles had their tyres slashed. So Guardian and Kinsale are investigating that incident and certainly a day or two before Christmas to, to come out in the morning and find your car tyres slashed certainly wasn't too pleasant for, for any of those car owners. Yes,
3: yeah, really, really, really mean. And a vehicle spray-painted at the skull, at the pier and skull, Call this is fear, a, this yes, an
9: unusual uh, one. Very unusual, again, um, you know, but not, not not pleasant for the car owner to to find their their vehicle covered in orange spray paint. This happened on the night of the 26th, 27th of December at Collipier in Scholar, would be known as locally down there. So Gardaí and investigating that criminal damage
3: incident. OK, if anybody saw uh, anything. And um, with people struggling at the moment with the current restrictions, you want to highlight a bereavement support line?
9: There is. This is uh, very recently um, uh, has come on stream and it's, who were behind it is the Irish Hospice Foundation. It's a free phone number it's it's manned for between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Monday to Friday. And it's there as a support for people who have recently lost somebody. And the number is one 800 77 That's one 800 77 And certainly in the current restrictions around funerals, at the moment um, that number could indeed be invaluable to help people through uh, a, a difficult life, time a
3: lifeline to, to somebody and we constantly say to people to reach out and it, and it is difficult at the moment because you can't call to each other's houses people can't pop in to see how you're doing but there's lots and lots of support groups like that National Bereavement Support Line so, so please do uh, reach out now people going for COVID-19 tests who get stopped at a checkpoint this is an interesting one that you want to highlight
9: it is and look it's for the safety we're We're all here to keep each other safe and it's just something that's been highlighted um, by our members out at the checkpoints and it's something just for people to be mindful of um, as they are travelling to get COVID tested. um, As they approach a checkpoint, uh, we're asking people to keep their window up, have their face mask on and just to show the Garda member the appointment letter for the COVID test and you will be sent on your way.
3: Yeah, just don't don't open the window and engage in conversation because obviously you, you, you're you going for a test because you've got symptoms and you may be COVID positive, you just don't want to pass it on particularly, you know, guard the frontline workers.
9: It is and look, it's happening every day uh, where people are, as you described it there that's, that's how it's unfolding at the checkpoint and we're just very concerned uh, to keep our members safe uh, while they're doing such important duties and, you know, while we're on about the issue of the checkpoints it's just to remind people that we do have fines on the spot implemented now in relation to the 5k travel restrictions, and it is available to us um, now, and it's a 100 euro fine. We don't want to be issuing uh, tickets to people, it's as a last resort, and we're just letting people know on the show this morning that those fines on the spot now are now available to the guardie to use, so... You know it's followed the government advice to stay at home, and that's absolutely necessary, yeah, and if
3: you know, they're not saying you can't go out for exercise, but if you're going out for exercise, you stay within your five kilometers
9: you do you do, and again um that the find the spot is available to us, and we will have members out in scenic areas uh traditional areas there um again over the weekend, and we just we really don't want to be utilising the fines in the spot. We want to be engaging with people and explaining uh, the scenario to people. And so we're appealing for people to stay at home and let's hope that over the next number of weeks we can see improvement. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Fingers crossed. And thank you for that, Ian. Stay safe and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good afternoon to you. It's gone past 12. That is Inspector Ian O'Callaghan uh, joining me from abandoned guard this station and uh, I'm glad that he mentioned that about the COVID uh, testing because, you know, people are being stopped at checkpoints. Just, you know, hold up the letter or if you have it on your phone sometimes it's a text message that the COVID test centre will, will tell you just so that the Garda can see and they, they will wave you on. I heard of somebody, this is this is where the utter stupidity of some people when you sometimes wonder do people understand the seriousness of coronavirus? I heard a doctor recount a story of one of her patients tested positive for COVID 19. She had rang the patient, you know, went through with him everything that was expected of him and how he had to self-isolate and that meant self-isolating in his room, away from his family members and, you know, don't go to work and, you know, please God, everything will be fine and after 10 days you'll be able to come out and everything will be fine and you'll be able to go along your merry way. The following day, that same guy turned up to the reception to the reception of the GP practice and said, hi, I'm in here to get a work note to say of COVID-19. Putting everybody in the GP practice then at risk because this man had, had already, wasn't that he thought he would COVID-19? He had COVID-19. If you've got to pick up a letter from a GP practice, get somebody else to do it or ring the GP practice and get them to post it out to your employer. But please, when you've been confirmed COVID positive, you need to self-isolate away from everybody, in even everybody in, inside in your house. It means staying in one room in your house. If you're living with other people, if you're living on your own, you're fine. You've got the run of the house, but you need to keep away from other people as well. Okay, some of your thoughts coming in. Keep your pet questions coming, please, because Jane Pickett will join us in a couple of minutes. Our resident vet on Besber, Anthony said, to think besber was even put up for redevelopment with all of the previous knowledge of what happened there is absolutely baffling. After all these recent apologies by state and church these grounds and many more like them need to be fully investigated as to what really happened to the unfortunate children there and that is from um, Anthony Ross said hang on now the church had supreme power this is talking about previous Old Ireland. The church had supreme power so nobody did their own thing because they lived under the threat of being excommunicated, said Ross. They had unbelievable power. Someone else says, just wondering if any of the men who made these ladies pregnant ever came out and said, sorry, some of those men must still be alive. And remember the commission report showed that some of the cases were because of of incest or were because of rape uh, as well Hi Patricia I was in the Good Shepherd Convent in Sunday as well over 45 years ago I would just like to say I saw nothing but kindness we had lovely food clothing education holidays pocket money beautiful staff and beautiful nuns as bad as it was for some there was lots of goodness and kindness too please let people know that as well and, and I'm glad to read that out and that was one of the things also in the commission's report they did find some cases of kindness but they were sadly in the minority compared to what the majority of women experienced. but I am glad to mention that. Thank you for that. Hi Patricia. I remember my father telling me how the priest in our local vi- village used to name and shame any unmarried woman that became pregnant in the parish. Obviously, was that from the Old trails? Obviously, the fathers were never named. Yeah, it was almost like it was the Immaculate Conception. I just, I still have a huge issue with that as well, why it was always left the problem was always the women's it was never the men the men seem to never be wrong uh, at all Hi Patricia just wondering if any oh this is back to vaccines just wondering if any minister or anyone in government has been vaccinated is Leo still working in a hospital I'm assuming if he, if he is he would have got the vaccine the ordinary people will be the end of the queue as usual I haven't seen because I'm assuming if any of them do get vaccinated they'll come out publicly and do it in order to encourage others to do it I certainly haven't seen it and I haven't heard of Leo Varadkar working in a hospital since he did a shift Mm, it was back at the time of the second was it the first wave he, he did a shift I haven't seen him working in a hospital since but no I certainly have had no have seen nothing to say anybody at government have received vaccines uh, yet Hi Patricia all we're short of now is for health workers to adapt the same attitude as school teachers in respect of not wanting to go to work what would happen the whole country would fold up that's to put it mildly that's from Tim in Yall Noreen is commenting on the lady who contests about her daughter who wants to get a driving test because she's not an essential worker she's got to give up her driving test date even though she's a stay at home mum with a young child and she needs to bring the child to places and she needs access to her car Noreen says I can't think of any worker more essential then a stay-at-home mum. Maybe a letter from the husband, says uh, Noreen. Yeah, you certainly could try that. And then there's one final one here, Patricia. Hi, I was doing my grocery shopping yesterday in a large store when a lady about 20 years of age came in with her friend also doing the grocery shopping but wasn't wearing a mask. Now, a member of staff approached her about the mask Uh, But I didn't get to hear the conversation, but she was still allowed to go about and do her shopping. I was so annoyed. Why did this person think that she could go out in public without a mask when all of us are told we must wear masks? Why did the shop not have a policy to deal with this situation? Why was she allowed to continue her shopping? While we still have members of the public behaving like this, how are we ever going to control this virus? I have two members of my own family working in the front line and they are taking huge risks every day to help people. Now I I don't I don't know if she was approached by a member of staff. All I can assume that perhaps she's got some medical condition that she's not allowed to wear masks. You know, she finds breathing she can't breathe if she puts a mask on. But if that's the case, I always say to people who find themselves. In, the, in situations like that, then wear one of the face uh, visors. Some shops are very good about asking people to leave if they don't have a mask on. Other shops are saying it's not our job to tell people to leave, not our staff, don't want to put our staff in danger. You can have some members of the public getting very vicious towards members of staff if they try to tell them to leave because they're not wearing a mask. So I don't have answers to any of your questions. All I can, can think of is If she was approached by a member of staff and there was a conversation I'm just assuming that there was some medical reason why she's not wearing a mask but again I say to you as I've said to many others before if you go into a situation like that and there is somebody there without a mask because remember you're wearing a mask to protect that person that person should be wearing a mask to protect you then give that person way more than two metres keep well away from the person and if you're feeling anywhere uncomfortable leave the store go to, a, go to a member of staff and say look I'm leaving the shopping there I'm thinking if you've got a big trolley load of uh, food and just say I'm a bit uncomfortable at the moment I'll come back at another time and finish finish off my shopping we all have have personal Responsibility when it comes to looking after ourselves uh, as well so don't put yourself anywhere where you may feel that you are feeling very uncomfortable or very nervous 1850 333 103 going to take a break and we are back getting your pet questions answered by Jane Pickett our resident
4: vet
2: Court today on C103
4: with Macroom Motors leading the way for Toyota hybrids the place to order your 211 Toyota see macrooemotors.com
3: Off to the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, where Jane Pickett, a resident vet, joins us. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Let's get straight in with questions uh, for you. Kicking it off with a listener who says, "Prisha, I've got a weird question for Jane. I hope she can help me, please." I've been feeding lots of wild birds on my windowsill, doing it all throughout the pandemic. I was using an upturned Tupperware dish as the table, and it worked fine. Over Christmas, I got a proper bird table, and last week I assembled it, put in exactly the same place, used exact same bird food that they had been using, and the birds are staying away in droves. What have I done, Rock?
10: Oh, well, first and foremost, thank you so much for feeding the birds because they're a beautiful part for wildlife. Um, but they are very nervous little creatures. Um, I think it is probably just that this is a new thing in their environment. So, although it might be in the same place with the same food, they're naturally wary because that's the instinct that keeps them alive. Um, essentially, is, is being wary of their surroundings until they know that they're safe. So this new bird table will probably just take a little while in their environment before they decide. Look, nothing scary. It's not a monster. I can go near it to investigate. And once a few of them start investigating and finding finding the the bird seed all of a sudden they'll be there in their droves. I think it's just a little bit of time. But what you could do in the meantime is if you still have your little Tupperware box on the windowsill, just be over this. like, if there is any cold spell, just so they are getting a little bit of food, you could always just pop a little bit of food into the Tupperware box as you were doing before as a little table, but keep your new bird food there on the new bird, bird feeder. And Eventually, they'll probably start cooking. They will to get to And once to it, you know that yeah. they're confidently using uh, the, the new one, you can take away the Tupperware box. Yeah. But, um, well done. And I think yeah, it's time.
3: great because <laughs> there's another cold spell due tonight. So, and in, in the there. cold weather, well, well, even outside of the cold weather, we should be feeding the birds, the wild birds.
10: Yeah, I think it's it's most critical in the cold weather, um, okay. but I think certainly all the time because it allows them to build up a certain amount of fat reserve so that they can make it through the colder spells.
3: And here's an, an interesting one. A listener says, question for Jane, your vet, please. I lost my dog last August. I'm still missing her. I'm in bits. Any idea on how best to deal with the loss of a much loved dog? Oh.
10: Mm-hmm.
3: Get another dog?
10: It's really, yeah, it's a really, really hard one. That might be the right answer for some people to get another dog or, or not others. It really depends on when you're ready. With any pet, whether it unfortunately passes away for some reason or whether it does go missing and get lost and not not return, there's always going to be a grieving process. Um, it's really, really hard. I think if you feel ready to get another dog and that's something you feel ready and you would like, then 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 maybe now's the time to, to get another little companion. However, what I would say is if you have any slight doubt in your mind, Time, time before you take on on a new dog might be a good thing. There are a lot of resources online um, for, let's say, managing managing grief associated with loss of a pet because it can be a tough time. Yeah, I know actually of of one site that I normally direct people to is called the the Ralph, um, R A L P H. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you Google, let's say, the, the Ralph Pet Pet Loss, you'll find a website there with a lot of really great resources. Go away. Yeah. And a nice, a nice community. Yeah, but it's, it's only other
3: pet pet owners can identify with the pain of it. It's, for but other people, it's it seems really so tough. strange that somebody would lose a dog in August. And here we are in January and she's still, as she said in, in her text, still in bits. Hang in there. Hang in there. Hang in there. It's, in it's there. Tough. It, it tough. It is tough. Hi, North it Cork listener. I've an eight-year-old Dog, very healthy, uh, but a little overweight. She has what I would describe as a soft lump about the size of a small egg between her back legs, just a little forward towards her stomach. She is neutered, doesn't seem to be bothering her, but I'm wondering does it need to be investigated? Mm,
10: in short, yes, I think that would be a good idea. Um, as long as she's otherwise well in herself. And that's great. I think I would give your vet a call at the moment. um, It it varies from vet to vet at the moment. Some vets are only doing, let's say, sick cases and emergency only. Um, And let's say more routine workup might need to be just temporarily postponed. But have a chat with your vet and see what their procedures are that they have in place at the moment. This is something that I would advise you do get investigated. It it could be something and nothing. It could just be a soft little fatty lump. And they tend to be benign, so not harmful. Or given the position it's in, it could be, let's say, a little breast lump something like that. It's just really important that we we know and we find out and generally you're about to do a little test with a a needle to remove some cells from the lump that we can send to the lab or examine with a microscope and that can give us a really good idea. It's like a little biopsy but that can give us a really good idea what the lump is and whether any action needs to be taken. So well done for noticing it and I think it needs to be checked out.
3: Okay, Mike in Ochnagree has a big male collie dog 18 years old, normal uh, weight, quite active but he barks a lot at night and this is obviously something he hasn't been doing before. He's not on his own. There's two other dogs um, with actually his son and daughter or her his son and daughter. So there's two other dogs uh, with him. They all have very comfortable bedding, well covered in. They're free to walk around the yard. It's all well fenced in. He's of late is slow to eat. Sometimes I've noticed him drinking a lot of water. Could it be diabetes? Or at the age of 18 is it just literally old age could he live for another two years he is a very active dog I walk with him every day
10: yeah I think this is a really interesting one um, 18 is a is a really really good age for a collie um, if he's very well and very active there's no reason he shouldn't keep toddling on age is not a disease you know it's just yeah. a number but what I would say is there are certain things that, that creep in over time. So I, I would be a little bit concerned if he's drinking a little bit more and his appetite is not great. I think it definitely warrants just a general health check from your vet. Uh, they might suggest doing other kind of ancillary testing like urine samples, depending on what they find on physical examination. Um, just to check out the kidneys, but also as, as our a thing, saying, diabetes is really common, particularly in our kind of older population of dogs. Um, so it's really important to check that out just so that we can keep their quality of life good. As regards the barking at night, I would wonder if some of that might just be let's say, a little bit of senility. So it's, it's something that we think may happen in our older patients, similar to or let's say, older older people, um, where their, let's say, perception of their normal environment may change a little bit very much, like, let's say, being a little bit senile or, or having Alzheimer's, so changes in brain function. It's impossible to prove in dogs, though. Um, so sometimes you can get changes in behaviour, like barking at night or pacing. Uh, a little bit of agitation. But I think pop to your vet, get the get the drinking and the, the appetite assessed and have a chat to them about the behavioural change as well because there are things we can do to help.
3: But I mean, if a dog is diagnosed with diabetes and it does happen, it is treatable. Mm-hmm.
10: It is treatable, exactly. Now there's no no getting around it. It is a big commitment because when you have diabetes, it means that your, your body is not able to process the blood sugar it, it is taken in from food. Um, so we need to help them with that by in, in giving them an injection once or twice a day, depending on, on the protocol, to help the body to replace the hormones it can't make itself. So it's a big commitment and that will be for life. But yes, it is treatable and I have lots of patients with diabetes that have a really great quality of life. Um, so it's, it's definitely not a death sentence. And it is, like it,
3: that. is it something f- normally for older dogs, older animals?
10: Generally older dogs, yes. Middle-aged to older dogs. However, we we it's a little bit different than cast. It can be associated with a lot of weight gain. Um, so with cast it can kind of be any age if they're very overweight with dogs. Sometimes they can be really quite slim and uh, they don't have to be overweight and it can it can be generally kind of middle to older age. And one of the key key signs that we see is let's say bedwetting or drinking or peeing a little bit more than usual. Sometimes a little bit of weight loss as well. Okay. They will be the main signs that okay, we we'll
3: get, get Get, it checked, get uh, it checked, Mike. And a final yeah. one, I have two Ro- Ro- Rothweilers, mother and son. They won't eat their nuts unless they're soft. Is that okay?
10: Hmm, it could be two things. It could just be habit. They might know that if they hold out, they'll get a little bit of gravy or the nuts will be softened for them and they might find them a little bit more tasty and palatable that way. But the one thing just to make sure is that if, as long as they're going kind of for the annual health checks or even just a general health check to the vet, just to make sure that they don't have any oral pain, so any dental kind of tooth toothache, as it were, it will make them less inclined to chew and chomp at their food. Now, if they're chewing at, let's say, their toys and, let's say, harder treats, with no discomfort and they're quite happy to do that it's unlikely to be to be dental pain um, but I think it's always worth just ruling out uh, it might just be habit so it could yeah. be either
3: Okay but that's from a nutritional point of view you'll still get the same nutrients whether yeah. there's after heart Yeah oh absolutely. Okay.
10: Yeah. Alright listen have a good week
3: and we'll talk to you next Thursday Thanks for that. Thank you. Bye bye Jane Pickett our uh, resident vest just on mask uh, wearing Nora says this is on the woman who went into the shop and there was somebody in there not wearing a mask if a person has a condition and they can't wear a mask are they not at higher risk to themselves by going out uh, surely some people are just using this as an excuse to go into a shop without wearing a mask and Trisha Blackpool can't understand why doctors or consultants are not issuing some kind of a badge a little bit like the badges for the disabled drivers for people who genuinely can't wear masks and I've heard lots of people try to go to their doctor to get and consultants to get a letter and they say absolutely not. If you can't wear a mask, wear a shield or don't go out at all, I think is what some are, are saying. Uh, OK, that's where I've got to leave it for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara. We're back with you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Have a good afternoon and more importantly, stay safe.
2: Court Today on C103
4: with McCrew motors leading the way for toyota hybrids the place to order your 211 toyota simacrewmotors.com
1: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot bot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times